Welcome to Podcast Against Antisemitism, the show that takes a deep dive into the world's oldest hatred. I'm Ellie, your host, and you can join us for new episodes every Thursday. Subscribe now at antisemitism.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss a show. You can also watch the podcast on our YouTube channel. And please consider leaving us a nice review so we can grow our listenership. It makes a big difference. In today's episode, I sit down with the Brooklyn-based Rabbi Mordechai Lightstone, one of the key figures spearheading the social media of Chabad.org, the official homepage for the worldwide Chabad Lubavitch movement. Rabbi Lightstone and I touch upon a variety of interesting topics throughout our conversation, but something that stuck with me was his perspective as a Hasidic Jew on the current spike in anti-Semitism against identifiably Jewish people such as himself. He not only describes the community's response to the anti-Semitism in New York today, but he relates it to events that transpired 30 years ago, such as the deadly Crown Heights riot. I learned a lot and found this conversation to be incredibly compelling, and I think you will too. But first, a roundup of this week's main headlines. The German Chancellor has condemned remarks by the President of the Palestinian Authority made while on a visit to Berlin. PA President Mahmoud Abbas, also known as Abu Mazen, refused to condemn the horrific attack by Arab terrorists at the Munich Olympics in 1972, when they murdered 11 Israeli athletes. Instead, Mr. Abbas accused Israel of committing 50 holocausts. According to the international definition of anti-Semitism, drawing comparisons of contemporary Israeli policy to that of the Nazis is an example of anti-Semitism. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who was standing next to Mr. Abbas when he made his remark, later condemned it on Twitter, writing, For us Germans in particular, any relativization of the singularity of the Holocaust is intolerable and unacceptable. I am disgusted by the outrageous remarks made by the Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. Glenn Secker, the Secretary of Jewish Voice for Labour, an anti-Semitism denial group and sham Jewish representative organisation, has said that, quote, Jews who place Israel at the core of their being are an obscenity. In footage published by the Jewish News, Mr. Secker can appear to be heard making the remarks in his speech at a protest organised by Stop the War, the Palestinian Solidarity Campaign and Friends of Al-Aqsa. In the past, Mr. Secker has said that Jewish organisations are, quote, in the gutter and part of the problem, among other inflammatory comments. Flyers claiming that, quote, challenging Jewish privilege is social justice were distributed to homes in Brighton and Hove recently. The flyers utilise classic anti-Semitic tropes of power and control in asking why Jewish people, quote, get special privilege when it comes to top universities. The flyers go on to state, challenging white privilege and Jewish privilege is not anti-Semitic, it is not defamatory, it does not insult anyone, it is social justice. The Flyers also advertise the online domain of the Goyim Defense League, a US-based hate group whose membership reportedly contains several neo-Nazis and is responsible for stunts such as hanging a banner from a bridge in Texas that read, Vax the Jews, and driving around Los Angeles dressed as Nazis. The Catholic Church in Spain has announced an investigation into claims made in an Israeli newspaper that some towns and villages in the country still observe rituals relating to the anti-Semitic blood libel. The blood libel is a racist claim that Jews use the blood of Christian children in religious rituals and has been part of Christian and, in the modern era, also Islamic, anti-Semitism for centuries. It was also used to justify the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492. According to the Haaretz newspaper, one example is in Toledo, where the Santo Nino de la Guarda myth is still commemorated. 
The myth dates back to 1480 and imagines that a child from the village was abducted and murdered by Jews, even though no child was reported missing at the time. Regardless, every September, villagers carry an effigy of a child to the church where it is blessed by the clergy over the course of a five-day festival, with a child venerated as a saint. And finally, the far-right group Patriotic Alternative hung a banner that read White Lives Matter over Clifford's Tower in York. The stunt was filmed and released on the group's social media channels. In its Telegram channel, the group wrote that it, quote, narrowly avoided disaster and a mob of 40 Hasidic Jews. For those of you who may not be aware, Patriotic Alternative is a UK-based group headed by the former leader of the youth wing of the BNP, Mark Collette. Mr. Collette is reported to have dabbled in Holocaust denial, has described the Holocaust as an instrument of white guilt, and is regularly heard as a guest on the radio show of the former Ku Klux Klan Grand Wizard, David Duke. The group is known for its efforts to recruit youth to its white nationalist ideology. Previously, the far-right group published an online alternative homeschool curriculum that was condemned by MPs Nofsted as poison and hateful, and attempted to recruit children as young as 12 through live-streaming events on YouTube, according to The Times. The stunt was reportedly organised by Sam Melia, who, two years ago, was accused by the anti-fascist group Hope Not Hate as being a leader of the Hundred Handers, an anonymous network of activists who have carried out far-right stickering campaigns across the country and worldwide. Additionally, Melia has also allegedly supported the prescribed neo-Nazi terrorist group National Action. Now, the location of Clifford's Tower is particularly significant because, in 1190, a massacre of York's 150 Jews took place after the community gathered in the tower, seeking refuge from the belligerent townspeople. The massacre at York was one of a series of anti-Semitic pogroms in England in 1189 to 1190, which also included Norwich and Lincoln. This act of far-right hostility towards York's Jewish community is repugnant. Thankfully, no violence occurred in this situation. A part of me was disappointed that the stunt received next to zero news coverage, as publicising these antics will help expose what the group is and warn people from associating with it. But another part of me is relieved that the stunt got no attention, because, I mean, think about it. Patriotic Alternative unfurled a provocative banner over one of this country's most iconic historical sites with so much meaning for the history of the Jews in this country. And the lack of coverage wasn't because this country isn't sympathetic to the issue of anti-Semitism. As a whole, it is. But because the far-right group led by Mark Collette has such limited traction and his efforts to go viral are, while worrying, also kind of pathetic. The far right as a movement is dangerous, and campaign against anti-Semitism always continues to act against it. And patriotic alternative remains a threat to civil society, the Jewish community, and other British minorities, because in many respects, it is frighteningly successful, and it needs to be called out and, where possible, prosecuted. But there are also times like this, when it's a pitiful failure, and giving it the mockery it deserves can be the right response. Sometimes, the best thing to do is to look at them and say, this is just sad. And now, here's my interview with Rabbi Mordechai Lightstone. Hey, if you want to stay up to date with the fight against anti-Semitism, why not subscribe to Campaign Against Anti-Semitism? Visit antisemitism.org act or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or YouTube.
My guest today is Rabbi Mordechai Lightstone, a social media editor for Chabad.org, the official homepage for the worldwide Chabad Lubavitch movement. A Hasidic rabbi who is an involved member of his community, Rabbi Lightstone is also heavily involved in his local tech scene and has been a driving force for Chabad.org's online presence. Rabbi Lightstone, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm amazing. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for asking. Um, so let's let's start with a TED talk that you delivered a few years ago because I th- thought this was really interesting. Um, you 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 describe yourself as a Hasidic rabbi for the social media generation, and in this TED talk that you delivered, you used this old parable about a Lubavitch rabbi and his student to illustrate how we can use social media for the betterment of society. Could you tell the listeners the story and explain how you think the two relate? Um, yeah, so this story is, it's not just a parable, actually. I mean, there's a parable within the story. It is a historic conversation that took place I believe in the winter of 1903, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Shalom Dovber Schneerson, was traveling in, in Germany, and he was in Würzburg for Shabbos. Uh, and he had a small group of Hasidim who were traveling with him. And so while, you know, after the services were done, and the Hasidim sat down to Kiddush, I guess, to, you know, to, to say a little chayim, and to, to fabring, as they say in Yiddish, to spend the time together. So the Rebbe continued to, to daven, continued to pray, and spend that time, you know, you know, on his spiritual pursuits. And when he's done, he, when he was done, he sat down to join them. And so one of the chassidim, his name was Rabbi Yosef Yoizel, looked at uh, the Rebbe and said, Rebbe, you know, um, what am I? You know, what does it mean to be a chassid? And obviously the Rebbe knew he wasn't asking, you know, purely like, you know, does it mean to be a chassid? Should I wear this hat or should I, you know, pronounce words this way or that way or anything like that. He meant it was an existential question. Who am I? What do I do? What do I represent in this world? How can I be a better version of myself? And so the Rebbe told him, the, the fifth Rebbe said, to be a chassid is to be a lamplighter, is to be a person that goes out and kindles lamps um, and then brings light to the streets. Because remember, historically, before there was, there was electric lighting, so you had somebody whose job was the gaslight, right? To go from lamp to lamp and to take a, um, a torch and bring light to the public space. So the Rebbe was saying, this is something that, you know, every person could do. And this is what it means to be a chassid, to go out and bring light. Um, and the story goes on, you know, the chassid said, you know, what happens if the light is out on an island? So the Rebbe said, you have to take off your coat, jump in and, and you know, swim across to the lighthouse or whatever it is and bring the light there. But if it's in the desert, you got to go in the desert. The point is to bring light to every single corner of the world, every space, and really illuminate the world. And so that's both a, a lesson each and every one of us as human beings, as Jews, that, you know, we have the Torah, we have this inspiration, and we can bring light to the world around us with it. And it's a lesson for how we engage online as well, because being online is all about virality, so to speak, even if it's not on top of mind. You know, sometimes you have a, a person says a, puts out a random tweet or an Instagram post, and something blows up, and everyone is looking at it, and it gets all this attention. And so when you realize the potential you have using these services to reach so many people and to interact with so many people and to educate and touch people in such profound ways, then, you know, it gives you the, the understanding that you have the responsibility to use it to spread light, that it's very easy to get drawn down into the negativity online. And, you know, it's our job to, to elevate it and illuminate it. Well, this this really goes back to the, the um, Chabad Lubavitch 
practice of reaching out to other Jews to bring them closer to Jewish practice, one mitzvah at a time, you know, inviting them in for Shabbat meals, saying prayers, that sort of thing. Um, and and it's really interesting how, how it's been connected to social media. And of course, this this practice has gone on for, for centuries, um, and it's still carrying on, like across the world. Like, I remember earlier this year around Pesach, um, I was approached on the street by my local Chabad in North London. They asked if I would like to lay tefillin with them. I said, yes, I would. And they gave me free matzah. And it was, it was great. It was a very nice, wholesome moment. Um, and what I want to know is, is how does this, how has this practice changed, if it has changed, with social media? What did it look like before and what does it look like now? Right. So I think if you... If you get caught up in the platform, then it's it's a real rat race. You know, if you invest all your time and money and energy in Facebook, then the kids aren't on Facebook, they're on Instagram. And then you have to pivot and figure out how to go to Instagram, and now they're on TikTok or Snap or whatever it is. You're never going to be able to really catch up in that way. But if you're using these platforms as a way to connect human beings, to connect from the Shama to the Shama, from one Jew to another, from one person to another in that way, then you're no longer caught up in you know the question of which platform to be on. You're connected to human beings, and therefore it doesn't matter what the current trend is. You know you're ready and able to take the ability to inspire, to hold a conversation, to answer questions, to share information, no matter where you are. And so, on one hand, it really hasn't changed, right? I Meaning the same type of ability to connect to someone and inspire them that you need when. Um, you're, you know, a rabbinical student out on the street finding someone, hey, you Jewish, you know, a girl from a seminary goes out and gives Shabbat candles to another girl, all these things, you know, um, it's the same skills, the same, you know, uh, mission, the same purpose to not to even transform someone's whole life, just to give each person a chance to do a mitzvah and do something positive or transformative at that moment, at that place, you know, whatever may come after that. Um, and so that's the same on social media. On the other hand, yeah, you have to be aware of what the platforms are, what the strengths are, and you know how to use those platforms as a tool to spread more goodness in the world. Yeah, and as mentioned before, you you are into tech, and you you do work for uh, Chabad.org as, and in the social media side. And from what I understand, you you started this quite early. You sort of caught on to this this sort of trend fairly early on. And I'm I kind of want to know how you got into it, and also how you thought oh. This, this is a good tool for the movement. Right. Um, so I should say I'm, I'm only one player in, in a massive team of people that's really doing amazing things to connect both online and then beyond that offline with the Chabad emissaries doing all around the world. Um, so I'm just trying to do my, my small part. Um, but um, in terms of how I kind of came to this, I, um, I spent a year as a rabbinical student in Warsaw, Poland. To, uh, there was a small yeshiva there. And, you know, uh, it was a kind of like an upstart uh, startup thing and like we were getting involved with the community. And so I made a little blog just to be able to share with people, really with my family originally, what I was doing and how I was inspiring people, um, I think, or trying to. And the experiences, I mean, Poland has a lot of emotions as a Jew being there, both in terms of the history, but also the living Jewish community. You know, it's very easy to forget, but there are, you know, many Jews there, and even more now with refugees from Ukraine, which is a whole other whatever, but basically, you know, it's, there are Jews there that you can connect to. And, and so uh, I made this little blog and I realized that, yeah, it was, my mother was looking, my puppy was looking at the blog. I don't know who else was really spending the time to look at the posts I wrote, but there's a blogosphere. There's this whole online world. And so then I kind of got interested in, in how using social networks, 
read blogging, you know, already, you know, 2006, 2007, um, and then onto Twitter, Instagram, whatever it is, you know, how to use those things. And so when I started writing for, um, uh, for, for Chabad and then doing these various kind of things, posting things online um, for headquarters, so I realized there's an opportunity here. Um, and this isn't something that kind of, so to speak, I innovated and really, um, you know, introduced on my own. It really is something that the, the groundwork was already there. I mean, Chabad the door as a website uh, went on, you know, went online, not on the web, before its website, really, in 1988, 
I'm a Kazuki and this hurts me. And you know, there's a, there's a way to, to engage in dialogue that I think is constructive. That won't weed out the trolls. I mean, the trolls aren't there in good faith anyway. Um, and so, I guess the final question is: once you've, you know, if you have the platforms fixed and you, there's education both in terms of how you engage with them and schools in general and the world in general taking anti-Semitism seriously and teaching kids about this. I guess the final thing is, you know, how you view it yourself, because there's always going to be darkness online. You know, it's a powerful tool, and because it's so powerful, it has the ability to bring a lot of negative stuff as well. And therefore, it's our job to focus on how we do it. Like I, when I first started really getting into social media, I had this experience where there were people who were being antagonistic to me and, and not very friendly. And you know, I would get in these fights and like you know, and back and forth and arguing with them and trying to convince them. And my wife looked at me and said, "Like Mordechai, you know, you're not very happy right now." I'm like, right, I'm not, you know, so I'm being dragged down, I'm being schlepped into the mud by all these people. And then I kind of came to this realization that, like, why am I here? I'm con here to, to connect to great people, to share interesting things, to inspire people. And as much as possible, if you, you know, you don't feed the trolls, you, you stay away from that stuff, then, you know, it allows you to focus on why you're really there and to, you know, help, it denies them the oxygen they're looking for in terms of response. Obviously, there's some differences. I mean, a lady online is going to get a lot more nasty harassment than a man. And therefore, you know, I, I'm coming from a certain position where I can maybe, you know, I get it less than other people. But in any event, you know, when you experience the stuff, you know, don't feed it and deny the oxygen and focus on the good stuff. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. And, um, you know, it also begs the question, do you even think that social media, particularly Twitter, where you're literally limited to a certain amount of characters, is the best place for engaging in meaningful educational dialogue. Do you think it's possible to sort of convince someone in a series of tweets that allows, I don't know, 200 or 300 or however many characters, it's, is that the most productive way of doing it? Often not, but I think that depends on the person. Meaning someone who's in good faith trying to learn, you could share an article. You could take an article from Chabad or from some other source and say, like, here's something that gives a different perspective and it explains why we're doing it, what we're doing, what this means to us, and, and whatever it is. And so you have that ability to send people to, you know, um, a better place. Sometimes I'll, I'll DM people. I mean, that's only somebody who I feel like really is coming from a good place. I'll say, hey, I'm DMing you because I don't want this to become a flame war. I don't want this to become an experience where we're going at each other. Like, you know, I'm showing you, I'm replying quietly because if you... Listen, if you reply to someone publicly, it puts them on the defense, and then they go on the offense, and they try and, you know, they feel like they're being attacked and whatever it is. That's all if it's a good faith thing. I think for the negative stuff, then yeah, listen, you can put out the positive things and try and educate in that way. But I think the best education is when we're proud Jews. You know, we go out there and we share, here's my tefillin moment, here's my kosher moment, my Shabbat moment, preparation moment, whatever it is, putting it online and showing people, you know, how proud we are to be Jews and, and not getting dragged down negativity, then I think all the good people that are there that I want to believe, you know, the vast majority of people are there for good reasons, will see that and they'll respond to that. Agreed. Agreed. All too often, um, you know, that the, the trolls can can take too much of an effect. And in a way, they end up defining people's Jewish identities with anti-Semitism, which is a shame because sometimes we forget that, no, I'm more than a, a, a victim of anti-Semitism. I'm a proud Jew and I do this and I say this and let's not forget that. Exactly. It really is, I think, the, the ultimate way to, to address anti-Semitism is to not let it define us. That we have so much more than that, you know? Yeah, it, it really is. Um, now, look, I, I 
I, I, I want to stay on this topic, but I want to sort of move to real life anti-Semitism, physical anti-Semitism. So for reference, in the United Kingdom right now, um, among the threats faced by the Jewish community um, is the serious issue of anti-Semitic attacks being carried out in the uh, Hasidic neighborhood of Stamford Hill in North London. Um, and I know that neighborhoods in Brooklyn, in New York City, have a similar issue. Uh, earlier this year in March, the NYPD revealed that anti-Semitic hate crimes rose by 92% compared to a year ago. And many of these attacks have been carried out against Hasidim who are identifiably Jewish, meaning people can immediately see from how they dress that they are Jewish. Um, I'm wondering, why do you think we're seeing this spike in anti-Semitism against the more visible Jewish members of the community? Right. So I, mean, I think the, I guess there's a couple of different things. I think the spike itself, you have to look at kind of the, the longer trend, so to speak, because I think COVID pushed everything down. So the huge spike we're seeing now, just because people were, were in lockdown, you know, in 2020 and a little bit in 2021, you know, so to speak. But listen, the, the Hasidic communities kind of find themselves in two interesting positions. One, they tend to live, at least in, I, I'm, I've been to London. I'm, you know, kind of familiar with the London community. Actually, my, my grandmother, my granny was from London as well. Um, she moved to Canada after the war. Um, but uh, so I, I have, you know, a connection to London as well, but I'm just not as familiar in terms of the nuances and, you know, how geography and sociology, things like that play out in, in, in the communities there. So I can't comment on that with as much knowledge. But in Brooklyn, you have two things. One, you have the, the city Jews stayed in Brooklyn when everyone else left. When New York City experienced a massive, you know, spike in crime in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. So you had white flight and a lot of kind of Jewish communities decamped for, you know, other, you know, neighborhoods or even other, you know, uh, boroughs or city, you know, they moved out of the city entirely and they moved out of New York City um, to the suburbs. And so that meant the Hasidic Jews who stayed found themselves in, you know, these communities that were experiencing massive dem demographic change and a spike in crime and, and things like that. So geographically, they're just located in different places. And when you're dealing with places that have a higher rate of crime as well, you're going to have higher anti-Semitism, you're going to have all these things. It kind of comes part and parcel, I think. You know, if you're in the suburbs, you know, you're not on the street as much. You're not, uh, you know, exposed to people that may be getting this information and, and, and what have you. Um, then the other issue is that, you know, listen, as, as you know, Hasidic Jews or visibly identifiable Jews, you know, we're just easier to, to spot. You know, I, I wear my my identity, you know, quite literally I, in my clothes and my hat and my beard and whatever it is, my yarmulke. And therefore, any of these symbols, yeah, they make us more identifiable and people are able to see us. And at that point in time, we become kind of the you know, the, the, the point of, of what should we call it, of, of aggression for all, you know, for everyone. I mean, it, it, it's funny in general, I think, when you think about the way anti-Semitism works, if you call it funny, it's not, you know, tragically, that um, when you think about anti-Semitism, you know, we're both the bankers and the communists and, you know, the people that, you know, don't live in Israel, and we do live in Israel, and no matter what, you know, whatever excuse someone's looking for, they'll have it. So when you're just visibly Jewish, people are looking at you and say, you know, you're X, Y, and Z, whatever it is, it's like, I'm not a landlord, you know, I'm not a, a this, I'm not that, I, 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 you know, it's easy to project it on us. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an issue. You, you, you mentioned in the 60s and 70s, um, the white flight and, and, and people moved out due to the crime, but the um, Hasidic Jews stayed. Why, why was that? So that's actually very interesting. When it comes to Kranites, the Lubavitcher Rebbe um, basically said that Jews don't run, you know, that... There were, number one, you don't have a reason to be afraid of your neighbors. There's actually a, an interesting letter where a person wrote 
that um, his mother lived in her, had purchased the house, and this was 1955, I forget the exact, 56, was very early on in the terms of the Hasidic presence in Crown Heights in general. Crown Heights being a neighborhood in Brooklyn where the Lubavitch movement is, is based. And so this uh, person wrote to the Rebbe saying that his mother bought a house and a non-Jewish, non-white family moved next door. So the Rebbe said, why are you afraid? Like, you came from Europe. You know, the, the white people there didn't treat us very nicely, so you don't need to worry about someone that moves next to you that looks different. You know, they're good people that are trying to do good things as well. So there was, number one, you don't run away from your neighbors. That's, that's the first thing. And then the other thing is, when people leave, so who leaves? Those people who have mobility. Young people who have the money and the means to reinvent themselves, to start new lives, maybe find new work, definitely buy a new home, you know, start new synagogues. Who stays behind? The poor, the elderly, those people who lack the ability to get up and move so quickly. And so when you have this flight, ultimately what happens is you may be saving yourself, but you're abandoning the most vulnerable within our community. And therefore, in terms of the Hasidic community, the Rebbe said, like, you, you can't leave because there are others here. You may be able to leave and you'll be fine. What about the person who doesn't have that, that privilege and ability to leave? And therefore, the Lubavitch movement made a, a, a real choice to stay and to remain in the neighborhood, even when it became, you know, difficult, I guess. So they stayed when crime spiked and presumably when crime spikes at you know, so does anti-Semitism or, or prejudice against any group that is in the area. Um, what was the response to anti-Semitism then? And what is the response to it now from the Hasidic community? Right. I mean, I think there are kind of times responses, which I think interest me more in that sense that you, you need you need safety, right? People are being beaten up, you know, no matter what your feelings are about mass incarceration, which, you know, from our point of view is, is a problem, right? In America, particularly if some people in jail and their, their lives are destroyed, there's real issues there. But you need to stop the crime, right? You need to be able to make sure that people are safe, that people aren't being assaulted in the streets when they're walking home from shoal. So you need that, you know, that police presence, and you need things in place to make sure that there is, you know, uh, just a basic safety for people to exist as people. Um, that's one. You know, and on top of that, though, and there all the security things that are necessary with that, you know, make sure that the, the security in shoals and that safety exists. Um, but on top of that, there is an educational thing. There is this idea that um, by showing the number one, by, by teaching people about the humanity of their Hasidic neighbors and helping them understand who they are, and more importantly, to help a kid, you know, understand, you know, his or her own purpose in life, a non-Jewish kid, that, you know, that every and every single one of us plays this really critical role in the world and that, you know, we're different and we have our differences, but, you know, there's a one God for all of us who's inspiring us and to, to center themselves in this message of, you know, this greater purpose is something that through an educational means, which is long, it takes time, and needs to be, you know, incorporated into all the different ways which people understand things, but something like that can help people better understand the connection we have to each other and hopefully, you know, uplift the whole conversation. Let's let's go to an article that you wrote, which touched upon um, a serious incident involving the Hasidic community in the 90s. So, this article you wrote, it looked at the Crown Heights riot, and it actually won first place in the AGPA Rockow Award, which you've described that is essentially the Jewish Pulitzer Surprise, so Mazel Tov. Now, the, <laughs> now the, for those who don't know, the Crown Heights riot uh, was a devastating riot which took place in Brooklyn, uh, in Crown Heights in Brooklyn, over three days in August of 1991 during which, identifiably, Orthodox Jews were attacked, their 
homes and businesses were looted. And as, as you write in the piece, Dr. Edward S. Shapiro, a retired professor of American history and Jewish history, he called the riot the most serious anti-Semitic incident in American history. I've just, I've just given a very condensed version, um, but I would be keen to hear the events that took place uh, described in your words and why you chose to write the article. Right. So um, I chose to write the article, well, you know, I guess we'll, they're kind of intertwined, so I'll put it this way. Um, I chose to write the article because of the impact it had on, on my own life as a, a Jewish kid in Los Angeles. Uh, so, you know, when I was six years old, whatever it was, my mother was driving me to school and she pulled over and, you know, she was like very upset. And I'm like, why are you upset? She said on the radio, there had been a, um, somebody had made a comment spoke, speaking about the riot going on in Crown Heights and the violence against Jews and, you know, it upset her. And so at the time, I wasn't part of the Lubavitch movement. My family had, you know, we were Jewish, but we weren't involved with Chabad. Um, you know, so I said, like, you know, what's going on? Like, they're attacking Jews in the street. Like, that's, that blew my, my child, my, 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 my young mind, so to speak, that, like, I had thought anti-Semitism is something that takes place, you know, in Russia, you know, pogroms, Holocaust, stuff in the past. You know, it didn't occur to me, you know, at that age that you could have anti-Semitism, you know, like, in America, in the streets, in a major, you know, metropolitan, you know, center with, with a huge Jewish community and have that happen. Um, I think I was six at the time, I want to say, something like that. Um, and so it was definitely this eye-opening experience for me. And then after I moved to Crown Heights, actually for a period of time, we lived at the intersection where the riot happened, you know, or began, so to speak, um, that, you know, really piqued my interest because it is something I think has profound ramifications in how Jews understand safety and really kind of Jewish solidarity with each other. Right. So in terms of how did the riot happen? The riot happened, the Rebbe's uh, motorcade was coming back there, we'd visit his father-in-law and his wife after she passed away where they were buried in Queens. Um, and on the way back, the uh, one of the cars that was behind was a group of Yeshiva students who would help kind of set things up and uh, to allow the Rebbe to come. They fell behind the Rebbe's car and the police escort that was leading them. Um, and they crossed the intersection as the light was changing. Um, when the car, their car was hit by an oncoming car at the intersection, um, they went flying out of control. They tried to avoid a crowd in the process, went on the sidewalk and hit two Guyanese children, first cousins, um, Gavin and Angela Cato. And tragically, um, Angela was, was, was wounded very severely and Gavin ultimately ended up passing away from his wounds. The civic driver in the car jumped out, tried to help them, um, was unable to, and in the process, a crowd gathered immediately. It was, you know, a Brooklyn day where everyone was outside, the weather was pretty nice, people came over, and it, immediately the crowd became very aggressive. And there was this, you know, perception that, you know, the Jews had somehow done, did it on purpose. Somebody called, uh, the, para uh, called the paramedics, and someone also called Hatzalah, being the Jewish volunteer ambulance service, which was created... New York City, now it's all over the world, as a way to help fill in the gaps when New York City infrastructure was down. So that when people were uh, wounded, uh, uh, were, were hurt in general in New York, because it would take so long for an ambulance to come and the care you would get wouldn't be good, this allowed you know, local volunteers who knew the neighborhood, knew the culture, could speak Yiddish, could speak to people to come and help them out right away. So you had the co cops came first, dispersed the crowd, then Hatzalah came, the Jewish volunteer EMTs. The, um, the cops seeing the situation going on in Crown Heights and you know, how it was turning ugly and then in fact that there were people beating up um, the Hasidic driver um, and then you know 
the situation that's just told the Jewish EMTs, you take your guys, the city's on their way within minutes anyway, and an attempt to try and defuse things. And in fact, the EMTs themselves had tried to work on the wounded children, but just seeing how toxic it was and how, how violent it was getting, the cops said, just like, take the Jews and go. The optics of that did not look well to the crowd. So when people didn't see and understand this was an attempt by the police, by non-Jewish police officers, to try and defuse the situation, instead it was interpreted as the Jews only take care of the Jews and left the children to die. Um, the city uh, EMTs came very shortly after that. Unfortunately, um, they weren't able to help Gavin pass away. Later, uh, after these events, the people stood out on, on the corner, um, non-Jews, and began to speak about, you know, you know, the Lubavitchers doing this, and the Hasidic Jews doing that, and spreading all kinds of really conspiracy theories, if you think about you know, the things they said, um, rumors that people were drunk, and all kinds of things that were just baseless. Um, and the crowd got very angry, people ran to the neighborhood, and began to, you know, throw rocks at windows that had mezuzahs on it, and beat up Jews they saw on the street. Jump forward to later that evening, and there was a, um, a student named Yanko Rosenbaum, who was visiting from Australia. He was working on his, uh, his doctoral thesis about actually anti-Semitism in interwar Poland and about the relevancy to the world today, which is kind of chilling if you think about the, uh, kind of the ramifications of what he was looking into. He had been studying in the, in the Yivo archive in New York, and he was staying by family friends in Crown Heights. He was coming back to Brooklyn from being in a different neighborhood. And while um, he was when he was walking on the street, he was accosted by a crowd of people. The numbers vary. It could have been 15 to 20, 30. I mean, different. But the whole group of, of, of people came over and began to beat him up. Uh, and uh, ultimately, someone took a knife and began to stab him. This really was kind of a, a, a group attack on him. And even though he was a, a strong, tall person, you know, he was unable to fend off the entire crowd. He was hurt uh, very badly. Police came and they brought him to the hospital, where he passed away from his he passed away from his wounds later, early the next morning. Um, and so, you know, this just you know kind of set the stage for really really awful days. Um, and that's why a lot of people in Crown Heights call what happened the riot the, the, the riot that came you know from these events they called it a pogrom because you had this experience where you had non-Jews destroying Jewish homes, destroying Jewish property, the police, for whatever reason, you know, this is kind of, you can look at the article that has a lot of back and forth about, you know, various ways in which people understand um, what happened, but, you know, at the very least, the police didn't act, they didn't uh, step in, and they stood by, um, and so that caused, you know, just this really, you know, horrible, frightening experience where anti-Semitism happened. I think the relevance, I think, to us is how we as a Jewish community can and should stick by each other, right? That's kind of the takeaway that I have today. Because the in America, sadly, the um, some of the Jewish, you know, main organizations didn't speak up right away. And eventually they got understood what was going on, understood the horror of what was happening, but because it was used, oh, these Hasidic Jews, you know, the Haredi, they're, you know, so, you know, so, you know not like us. You know, maybe something happened, and they kind of, they, they were slow to act. And I think today there's a lesson that you know, when something bad happens to any Jew, matter, you know, who they are, what they look like, it needs to be important to each and every single one of us, because we really are in this together. Um, and there was an, uh, an opinion piece written by someone named uh, Abe Rosenthal. He was a big uh, journalist here in, in, um, in whatchamacallit in America, the New York Times. And so he had, at that point in time, he had an opinion column, and he said, don't think that if you live, you know, on the Upper East Side, which is kind of more posh Jewish community, um, maybe a little less, you know, observant today is actually, this is 
beautiful, you know, Orthodox shuls and a lot going on there. Don't think that you can hide your Jewishness, so to speak. Uh, yeah, you may feel like you and your wife look to the, uh, look like a non-Jew, but to non-Jew, you look as Jewish as the Chassidic guy. And that, you know, we really do have to stick together, because if we don't, then what happens to one of us could happen to any of us. Um, I've never heard it. Uh, the, I've never heard the, the series of events told in that way. And then it's, you know, put together like that. It's actually quite shocking. Uh, I don't know why I say actually it is, it's absolutely horrible. I've, yeah, this is the first time I've really heard it told fluidly. I've read articles about it, but when you hear it like that, it's really, uh, frightening. And the, the scene of, 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 you know, that student, who was, who was there to write about and study about anti-Semitism being surrounded by baying mob is just uh, horrifying. It's terrifying. And it's it's sort of clear to see why people would refer to this as a, as a pogrom. Um, how long did it take for relations between the Jewish and black community in Crown Heights to get back to a, a sort of tenable state? Right. So I, I think it's one of the factors in, in the riot, from the way I understand it, is that you had Crown Heights is an interesting neighborhood, historically. Why? Because Crown Heights was, has always been this part of Brooklyn where people could come in as immigrants or as you know, first-generation Americans and, and kind of get a, a toehold in the real potential the city has to offer. Um, historically, it was actually originally called, uh, not the entire Crown Heights, but an area part of it was called Weeksville where there were some free um, slaves, free black slaves, that bought ground there because it wasn't wasn't good for farming. So the city of Brooklyn, uh, it was before it was a borough, was ready and willing to, to sell the ground to them. And they built a community there where they could farm. And it was, I believe, the first free black you know community in New York or something like that. Um, after that, you know, um, the ground was kind of, the, the area was, was developed and they built houses there and they built it as a community for, uh, for immigrants, largely Eastern European and therefore largely Jewish immigrants to move to where you could be if you were all right, so to speak. They used to call them the all right mix. Those were the Jews that, you know, maybe their parents or earlier on, they themselves had moved to the ghettos, moved to the slums of the Lower East Side and Brownsville, which was in Brooklyn, is kind of a similar thing, living in tenements. And they now worked their way up. And now you had a doctor, you had a lawyer, you had a Jew. It was all right. He was okay, you know. And so he and his family could move to... Um, Crown Heights, and they can get a place where they can move into a house that was nice, uh, a brownstone, kind of a, a nice, you know, uh, house to live in, um, and, and, you know, show that they've made it in America. When they moved out, then you had the Hasidic Jews moved in. You had Caribbean American um, Im- you know, immigrants who moved in, where also there was now this infrastructure available to move in. And at the time, now Crown Heights is, is experiencing gentrification. It's very, very expensive to live here, and a lot of people are, um, can't even afford to live here anymore. But for a long time, you could move to Crown Heights and you could live in Brooklyn in a nice home, in a, in a nice community, shady streets, in a nice area at a relatively accessible price. So it's always been this place where I feel like people who want to work hard and, and live up to what America could theoretically offer were able to do that. Um, so because of that, when you look at the riots, a lot of the, the real violence came from people who didn't live in the neighborhood, right? You had afterwards, you had people who, you had, there are stories, listen, there are story, many stories of people who were helped by, you know, their, their non-Jewish neighbors. Jewish people were being attacked and, you know, the neighbor came out, screamed the kids get lost and helped, you know, help people and save them. Um, and so the it's important to remember that not all the violence came from the people who directly lived 
with Hasidic Jews. That was probably the minority. The majority of people came from outside who were brought in by rabble rousers and the, you know, stuff like that. Um, there obviously was a need for healing, for understanding, for communication. And I think a lot of that has grown a lot. You know, there are kind of these um, more superficial events where they're like, you know, the NYPD will make like a barbecue and there's a kosher barbecue and there's a non-kosher barbecue, which is actually also kosher. They just call it non-kosher. So everyone feels that it's, um, you know, or I don't know if it's actually kosher in terms of the grizzlies, but at least the meat is all kosher meat that's brought in. Um, and there's definitely a kosher side to kind of bring people together. But I think more importantly, there really is communication now that's fostered by, you know, just a more open dialogue, a better understanding. I remember a couple years ago, there was a school bus um, that belonged to Jewish school that was burnt down. Uh, some kids, you know, obviously were not in school during that day. They were, they were ditching school. Non-Jewish kids went in and lit a fire inside the school bus. The whole bus didn't burn down. There was this fire in the school bus. And it, was, it could have been this. It was a moment when it could have been a real incident. And, like, somebody contacted me, and I contacted um, a friend of mine. There's a Caribbean-American lady. Actually, I mean, she's, her, her, her great-grandfather is Caribbean-American. She's been, you know, her family's been in America already now for 80, 90 years, whatever it is. Um, but kind of, she came in, brought a bunch of people in, and you got a bunch of people on the table, and you're talking, and you're able to, like, let's diffuse the tension. Let's figure out how to address these things. So the, those things definitely help as well. I just think in general with, with, this, with New York City, now that um, at least in the past, you know, couple decades that things have gotten better and there's less crime in general, there's less, you know, fighting and jockeying over resources, all that makes a difference in kind of improving you know, people's lives. Yeah. I mean, I mean, New York is just such a sort of such a melting pot full of just different characters and different groups. And I suppose when you in that sort of place, I think people realize that the only way to do this is just to get along and ultimately at the end of the day just benefits everyone let's let's go to you now um you are in addition to uh you know working for chabad.org you're the founder of tech tribe which is a new york based community of young jews who work in or are enthusiastic about technology and digital media i want to learn a bit more about tech tribe and and how this came about right um so by doing this social media stuff i went to south by southwest which is a big festival in austin texas every year very much not new york in its, in its character um and i said there's, there's a film festival there's a music festival and then there's what's called interactive which is all about technology and digital media and, and culture and, and that type of stuff so I was invited to speak on a panel. My wife and I flew out, and we decided, you know, like, listen, we're, we're two young Chabadniks, you know, uh, you know, we want to make uh, a Jewish experience there. So there are Chabad emissaries in Austin that are doing amazing things, um, and so the the Chabad on, on on campus there at the University of Texas said that we could use like his his backyard to make a little like meetup for people who are by the um, by the festival. And so I tweeted out, you know, who wants to come to a kosher barbecue at South by Southwest? And like 20 people came, like, you know, it was amazing. It's like, here's my little tweet. And like I did a couple retweeted and like, boom, 20 people show up. Now, see, I tweeted kosher barbecue because in my mind, Texas barbecue, you know, it's, it made sense. Being from Los Angeles originally, in Los Angeles, when we uh, refer to barbecue, we mean hot dogs and hamburgers on a grill. To people from Texas, a barbecue is like a whole cow or a brisket that's been smoked in a smoker for like, you know, a whole day and it's a very different type of culinary experience people came like this is not a barbecue this is a cookout um like, okay 
but we had hot dogs and hamburgers and then and, you know beer and soda and whatever it is and so my wife and i uh, my wife her name is hannah so we spoke i said you know hannah we have to think of something different for next year if we're going to come back again she's like let's do shabbat like let's you know no one can say that that that, that as you know new york jews we're doing shabbat wrong shabbat we could do 100 percent right <laughs> only tell us that we're not doing it the right way so therefore we, we came back the next year coordinating with the uh, emissaries, the Chabad emissaries in, in, in Austin, and uh, got a space and made this Shabbat meal. And like 50 people came to that. And every year we've gone back since then. This past year, uh, first since COVID, this past March, uh, we came and there was like 400 people came for Shabbat meal. And it was really wild, people coming just for this experience to be able to unplug and connect. So built, making this experience once a year, we realized that there, there are a lot of people coming from I mean, people from Texas there, obviously. A lot of people coming from the Bay Area, from London, from Israel, you know, from all over. A lot of people coming from New York as well. And so we wanted to connect and create, a, you know, a Jewish community for the people who work in tech and digital media in New York City. And so in the past couple of years, this came together as Tech Tribe. So it's, a, it's an affiliate of Chabad Young Professionals, the Chabad network for young Jews in their 20s and 30s. And um, we've been kind of creating these experiences and these, you know, Shabbat meals, Torah classes, all the things you expect from Chabad, but with the twist being that we would like to try and find a way to have it speak to kind of that the, uh, digital digital native, so to speak, um, and to people who work in tech. So, for example, every year we have a different type of menorah. One year it was an augmented reality menorah. So I had, um, there's this Israeli lady who, um, actually she works, for, she works for a big tech company now doing AR, doing augmented reality things. She designed um, an AR target that if you scanned the QR code on the menorah and on your iPad, it would display Hanukkah guilt, actually Bitcoin, you know, so to speak, orbiting around the menorah with jars of oil and candles and things like that to kind of create this experience. So every we do something, this past year we had an NFT menorah to kind of capitalize on that, um, where if you purchase the NFT that um, that's on the menorah, you also get the digital file to be able to 3D print the menorah so that it doesn't just stay as a sort of virtual thing, but you could actually make your own one-of-a-kind Menorah as well. So, I, I want to talk about your your NFT project, NFTora, um, where where you you sell NFTs. First of all, um, very very quickly, can you sort of for those who don't know, I'm talking about myself now. I don't know. Can you please explain what an NFT is? Because I've read so many articles and I still don't think I understand. Right. So NFTs are, are NFT stands for non fungible token. And essentially, it's a way to create something that's digitally, that's unique in a digital world um, using blockchain technology, using either, you know, Bitcoin or most known as Ethereum and these various type of cryptocurrencies that exist to create uniqueness. Because you think about it, if you have a, this, this podcast recording app, if it goes out as an MP3, so um, someone can take the MP3 and copy it and you now you have two copies of it, more and more copies. Um, and so if you're charging for something or you want something to be unique, you know, in a way that there aren't the podcasts. Hopefully, many people hear it and, and become aware of what anti-Semitism. And we, we want people, I'm assuming, to, to, to hear this podcast yeah. and get out there as far as possible. Um, so please copy it, right? Um, yes. Or download it from the, you know, with your podcast app. But if you want to keep this thing unique, so then you don't really have a way of doing it unless you have something like um, the various the, the type of, what should we call it, the security features you can go in and DRM. And, you know, you're always kind of dealing with this, this situation where somebody could theoretically could, uh, could uh, copy it and try to keep up with it. What NFTs do is they use blockchain to create this uniqueness. That's the basic idea. 
So then people made these pictures and the pictures, you know, are now represent, you know, art and some people, artists have real art that they made digital copies of and they sell it as an NFT so someone can have a unique thing. So um, my appreciation of NFTs kind of goes up and down, so to speak, because ultimately you are just owning, you know, a, a piece of code, so to speak, a URL that points to a blockchain, you know, thing. You don't actually own the picture. Even if you have a picture, someone can take a screenshot, someone can right click and download picture itself is unique it's just this concept that represent that, that's connected to it in theory so yeah what, what we've tried to do with nf torah um which was a collaboration between my friend uh, myself and a rabbi in, in israel um was to tap into this idea that there is an actual mitzvah for every jew to own a torah scroll uh, it's actually the last mitzvah of the Torah that we should all own a Torah scroll. Now, I don't have a personal Torah scroll. I don't know if you have or not. You know, some people do, but it's not the most accessible accessible thing, especially because you know a Torah scroll is not cheap. You know, you buy a brand new Torah scroll, it's you know probably a hundred thousand dollars, you know, American or whatever it is. You know, prices go up, but now it's not a cheap investment, and it, legitimately so because it takes the scribe a long time to do it. It's, it's a lengthy process. You know, um, so the, uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Uh, came out with a campaign um, saying that uh, if you think about it, every Torah scroll has you know the number of letters in it. They say there's six hundred thousand corresponding to the number of Jews. It's actually a little bit less, but there's ways of making that math work. Different time, but in any event, every letter is important. If the Torah is missing one letter, then the whole scroll is no good. That's a lesson in terms of anti-Semitism in Jews, right? That if one Jew is missing, then the, the scroll of the Jewish people is also lacking something. So that way, meaning that since every every letter is a critical component of the scroll, and without it, it's not a Torah scroll. If you own one letter in the scroll, that means that you own the letter that makes you know the, the scroll a kosher scroll. So therefore, the Rebbe said that if every person, man, woman, child, goes out there and gets a letter in a Torah scroll, what does that mean? That means that they now you own, so to speak, the letter of the scroll, and you're taking part in this mitzvah. And you're right, you're you're crowdfunding a scroll that everyone could do. There's actually a website you can go online for kids. I think it's one, whatever the local denomination of, of money is. So it could be one dollar, or it could be you know, one pound, or whatever it is locally. You pay for that, and then the kids can get a letter from adults a little bit more, because you know, I think adults can pay a little bit more. But in any event, that is everyone can have a letter. So this NFT project, the idea was, let's write a real Torah scroll. Let's get a real Torah scroll out there. That um, it's actually a couple. It was one for a moshav in Israel, one for um, the tech tribe community here in Brooklyn. And in theory, if we get more of these written, we can get. Uh, uh, we can you know, we can bring out the technology to allow other people to do it. The idea is that people could each buy an NFT. The NFT represents a real letter in the Torah, and then through that, you're able to write a real Torah scroll that can be used in real life offline. So it's kind of this way of bringing it full circle. This is such a cool uh, concept, and I absolutely love the fact that you're actually sort of selling digital NFTs to to, to fund for a real physical Torah. Um, when you're so so NFTs can basically you know look, look like pretty much anything, and in, in this case, um, you know you make them look like letters or maybe a verse or something. If if you're selling, for example, like a, a Dalad NFT. Uh, would you do a bunch of different dalids that look kind of different to make them unique? So in, in this case, actually, currently, um, it's, uh, it's actually art for each parsha. So the idea is that since each parsha has a story, has a theme, has something speaking about, we had an artist who donated some art to us for the project. So people are buying a picture that has something that connects that that particular Torah portion. And when you buy it, you're, you're really buying a whole portion. I have a friend 
who a cloud rabbi on campus, who um, started working on a project where, in theory, you can make a certificate for each, um, you know, individual. I don't know if it goes by partial as well, but that means that it more directly corresponds to the letter you're getting, as opposed to, you know, um, just a general piece of art that, like, you know, here is uh, an arc for, for the you know, Parshat Noah that speaks about Noah, whatever it is. Um, so right now, in terms of the project, though, is that you're getting a piece of art. So it's not actually, um, you know, a letter, but it's, it's a, a piece of art that corresponds to the partial that you're you're getting a letter in. Mm. What what has been the response to to Tech Tribe and NF Torah from uh, the the wider Hasidic community? Because for a while, I mean, I, I and this may be a sort of a, a generalization from from the outside perspective. A lot of you know, it seems that uh, smartphones and technology was was often shunned, um, and it was viewed as a sort of a gateway to. I don't know, dodgy things on the internet or something. So it's just better to avoid it. So what has the response been from the Hasidic community to this sort of thing? Right. So, I mean, in terms of, number one, there are, there, there are differences within various parts of the Hasidic community. So within Chabad, you know, because the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe laid out, you know, this, this vision that technology exists for a purpose. And this is really based on the way Judaism views it. If you think about it, historically, the printing press, right? The printing press in Gutenberg, you know, made movable type printing press in, you know, in, in Europe, you know, that changed the world forever in very, very profound ways. Who are some of the very first people to say, we want to print our books? There were Jews, Jews in, in, in uh, I believe in Spain, you had a lot in Italy. They were like, let's get like the, the written words of the Rajba, was a very important commentary on the Talmud. Let's get Chumash Rashi, let's get the Talmud, let's get these things printed. It's actually, there's, there's a term for the books that were printed in the first, like, you know, 75 years of the printing press called Incandibella, I believe. Um, it can be less like that. Someone will, will correct my whatever it is. Um, it's not worth that. I don't really heard said. So it's reading books. Um, but the um, some of the earliest printed books ever are, you know, Jewish books of Torah because Jews said this is the way to teach. This is the way to share. This is the way to help every Jew get access to Judaism. And so the Rebbe said that technology is there for the same purpose. He said it originally initially in the concept of, of radio. The radio. If you have Torah classes on the radio, and people are like I don't know the radio. You know. Radio is for baseball games or for, I don't know, whatever, you know, people, no one wanted to, for the news, like, the radio for Torah. And I said, no, we have to use the radio to teach Torah classes. And there's multiple benefits. Everyone can hear it. It's accessible to where people are. And just this cool, almost like Kabbalistic thing, you think about radio waves, what happens? They continue to go out into the universe, right? You know, somewhere in, near Alpha Centauri, they're, gonna, they're starting to get the very first broadcast at some point, right? You know, they go out into the universe. Isn't that a beautiful thing to think about Torah just permeating every corner of the world and just spreading out? from Earth to the whole universe. Um, so, you know, there's that kind of lesson to it. And therefore, when it came to any new technology that came out, you know, Chassidim were like, this is a chance to teach and to connect to others. And so the internet was that example as well. So within the Chabad community, I think, you know, this is all, this makes sense to us. Um, within the different, you know, other communities, you know, you have the other Chassidic communities out there, other Orthodox communities, well, some people are much more cautious. And the reality is, I think, we, to a certain degree, we all need to be cautious with social media because, you know, we're opening up our lives to the world and is it always good? And there is a real balance. There's a real human conversation that needs to be had, you know, Jews and non-Jews. Like, you know, are we doing, you know, we're doing it, but, you know, should we be doing it? You know, should we have, you know, these matches of social, social networks which have all of our data and are, you know, just taking information and, and you know, you know, conversations now about how it's being used to push, you know, anti-Semitism and hate. Like, these are real conversations, the real dangers that everyone is kind of aware of. I don't think this idea of saying, like, block it all and never get a smartphone, whatever, 
may be nice in theory. Like, it might be nice to think about, you know, just like you know, anyone who's on Twitter too much is like, just try to delete this app and just like whatever it is. But the world doesn't work that way and the technology is here, so we have to use it for a positive purpose. Um, so outside of kind of the Chabad world, um, I'm not as familiar. I don't know if, you know, they know about me. Maybe they shouldn't. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm really here for, you know, for Jews. What I do um, is, is for Jews of all backgrounds, religious, not, that want to try and have, you know, those meaningful Jewish experiences. Yeah. I think, I think you're doing a really cool thing. And honestly, I, could, I feel like I could talk to you for so much longer. But um, I'm going to sort of ask you now the, the question that I ask all of my guests, which is for those looking to help in the fight against anti-Semitism, and they may be Jewish, and they may not be Jewish, they may know loads, and they may know nothing. Uh, what, what, what's your advice? What do you think they should do? Um, I think so. Number one is just education and learning and, and, and being knowledgeable in, in the issues and, and, and things like that. And number two, especially for the Jews, is just you know, be a proud Jew. Like, you know, we cannot let anti-Semitism define who we are because we just get caught in this rat race of negativity. And like, Judaism is so beautiful and so amazing. And, you know, when we're doing Judaism and we're being proud of who we are, that goes a very long way in, in making things better. Love it. Love it. Rabbi Lightstone, what are you working on and where can people find you? Where can people connect with you? So I'm working on um, this upcoming year is called the year of Hakel. So if you know the Jewish calendar in Israel, there's a seven year calendar. Shemitah is the seventh year with the Sabbath year when everything lies fallow, fallow, fallow and there's no farming done and things like that. The next year um, is the year of Hakel where in biblical times people come to the temple in Jerusalem and they'll be united. And so it's a time for this coming year, no matter who we are, to get together with our friends, with our family, with people we know who we don't know, and just bring people together, you know, starting from Rosh Hashanah, get together, make a little gathering, give some tzedakah, share some Torah, whatever it is. So I'm working on some programs around that. Um, and then if you want to follow me, um, you can follow the, I guess, you can follow the Chabad movement at Chabad on Twitter at Chabad.org. has all the things over there. And for me personally, um, very much my own personal account, my own personal opinions, do not reflect my employer or anything like that. Um, I'm at Muttel, M-O-T-T-E-L, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Snap, and I believe on TikTok I'm at The Real Muttel, um, because someone else took that. But in any event, yeah, that's how you can follow me. Awesome. Rabbi Lightstone, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for appearing on Podcast Against Antisemitism. Thank you. Have a good one. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Podcast Against Antisemitism. If you did, please subscribe and leave us a nice rating or email any feedback to podcast at antisemitism.org. Until next Thursday, stay safe.